right? I'm going to tell you uh, things that really annoy me about the ministry. And the first thing that really annoys me about ministry is footprints in the sand. And I rewrote, I rewrote it in my book, Sacred Cows, Make Great Barbecues. Um, I, I rewrote, let's just get it out. I rewrote footprints in the sand. Would you like to hear it? Okay, so it says, One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene I noticed only one set of footprints. Now, you'll know when my bit comes in, all right? So if you're a bit tired this morning, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll know when it comes in. Sometimes there's two sets of footprints, and other times there's one, one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, defeat, I, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me that if I followed you, uh, you'd walk with me always. Why? But I've noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there's only one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I need to do most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of trying to, trying to um, I would have loved to have picked you up and given you huggles, but I'm attempting to make a champion out of you. So if I kept putting you on my shoulders like that footprints in the sand stuff, you'll never grow past being a child. And my aim is to make you a well be the glass layer, a real history maker get it. So would it be all right if you stopped complaining and took it all on the chin? Oh, gosh. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that, that, we, we have nicified God, and he's trying to make champions out of us, right? And so he spends a lot of time annoying us. He spends a lot of time prepping us. The problem I think that we have is that we've got two, we've got two images of God, and both are, both are wrong. We've, both are wrong, but they're right, right? We've got, we've, we say to people, oh, God's not a policeman in the sky, you know? God hasn't, you know, God's not about to whack you and that. He, he will whack a lot of people shortly, right? But so he's actually a policeman in the sky, right? But we say he's not that. He's just a loving, kind, heavenly father that wants you to sit on his knee. I'm thinking, well, he hasn't been to me. You know, and in First in Peter chapter 1, he's a coach. He's the coach of the football team. He's trying to get the best out of me. He's trying to take me to the edge of exhaustion. Because he knows the exit of exhaustion is the place of transfer between human strength and God's strength. So he's trying to get me there. You know, he's, he, in, in, in James chapter 1, he's the great mentor. He just says it. He says, count it all joy when you're going through hell. Well, thank you very much. You know, he's, I mean, it's just not good enough that, is it? <laughs> to come bursting out of the gate in chapter 1 of James. It's just, that's not good enough, right? But if he's a mentor, nah, okay. I'll jot that down. I'll remember that, you know. And, and I, th- I, th- I think sometimes, you know, he's 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 the captain of the team. Sometimes he says, "Are you you're playing?" Other times he says, "You're on the bench." And rather than the devil being exalted, thinking, "Oh, the devil, we're ignored again." Sometimes it's God saying, "Who's actually going to score goals? Who's actually going?" Because it's on the bench where God's floodlight is actually on, because He wants to test your heart. No, is this about you, or is this about the game? Is this about you, or is this about playing? Because every now and again, He takes us off the field onto the bench to test our hearts. And He's the He's the great test. Sometimes He's the chairman of the board. You know, he's the God of 
Joseph that allows him to get persecuted, allows him to get double persecuted by Potiphar, allows him to be in, in the darkness of a dungeon, allows his dreams to lay unfulfilled, right? Sometimes he's, 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 he's the chairman, and then, and then he puts a butler and a baker in there, and that becomes the, his interpretation of two people's dreams while his own dreams lay completely unfulfilled almost flatlining, right, became the secret source to his glory. I just, who does, who writes the stuff? You know, he's the author, he's the perfecter of our faith, and you know, a good story always had a really, has a really dark patch just before the dawn. It seems like they've got, they've got that from God. Can you see what we've done? We've made this, this cartoon simplicity of who God is. And our role when you're preaching is to reveal Christ, right? It's, 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 it's not necessarily to give instruction. In, in actual fact, vision gives birth to commitment. So vision's the mum, commitment's the little children, right? If you want more children, preach more vision. And, uh, it's like, and, and vision works, right? If somebody gets up really early in the morning and they, they exercise twice on Christmas Day, it's because they're going for the Olympics. They've got a dream of the Olympics. Vision's driving them. And vision gives birth to incredible commitment. But in church life, we preach commitment like it's going out of style. We forget about a revelation of God. We need to preach a revelation of God and make sure that you're, you're bringing a revelation of the God who you've met with. Not the God who the author of Footprints in the Sand says that God is, right? Because sometimes he picks me up, but it's very rare. They're mostly my size tens in the sand and God's standing about 10 foot away. He's still there because he says he'll never leave me or save me, but he's not carrying me because otherwise I'd be, I'd be lame today. I'd have no muscle power because muscles are created from resistance and resistance is created in God's gymnasium. And God's the owner of the gym. He's the manager of the gym. He's the coach in the gym, and every now and again, he's the mentor that comes in and helps us with our diet. That's God. And you want to be preaching stuff that you have a conviction, this is who God actually is. So number two thing I hate is when people say, Dave, how's things? Because <coughs> generally things are, I'm between a rock and a hard place. There's some things that are overlined, like I expressed, some things in resurrection. But our focus is always, if you're a Neanderthal man and there's a huge forest, right? You don't thank God for the forest when there's a little fire in the distance there. It's very natural to have a look at that fire. Because that fire could actually consume the whole place, right? So, so again, it's a little bit wrong to say, hey, so wake up with gratitude, you know, hey, we're alive, blah, blah. Yeah, but there's a fire. <laughs> And there's always a little fire. We've got to watch. We, we, we've got, to, we've, we've, we've got to, to watch the little fires that go on uh, in, in our lives. My brain's just gone brain dead there for a second. Yeah, but the second thing, what did I say it was? How's things, right? I'm trying to refocus. I'm trying to give, give God some praise. And I have praise walks where I'm praising Him, but the fire's still burning, right? And that fire is my future revival. It's on fire. Something I've done is set on fire. Something's disturbing me, but that's the place where God's going to build a platform of His glory, right? So, so generally, when you get faith, right, you're on the edge of a desert in a land of impossibility. But then God tends to make things a little worse than better. So then you're in the heart of the desert, 
and, and you're between a rock and a hard place. The problem with people is they're asking me the wrong question. They're saying, how's things? Well, well terrible. It, they, what they have to ask me is, how, how are you? Because I'm completely different to event. Because I'm putting some effort into this. I'm not a meteorologist. I'm not a, I'm not a climate activist. I'm not somebody who's studying the weather patterns, right? I'm, I'm, a th- I'm, a, I'm a thermostat. I spend my life being a thermostat. Oh, my goodness me. I spend my life hanging on to, 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 to faith. The scarlet cord of faith. I'm, I'm, I'm lassoed to future things. I'm trying to live in that world. Faith has nothing to do with the car I drive, nothing to do with the state of my marriage. Faith has nothing to do with today, everything to do with an unseen tomorrow. You can't tell a person of faith by how life is today because faith has nothing to do with today. So I'm trying to hang on. I'm trying to stay lassoed to, to the oxen of tomorrow, lassoed to the cattle of tomorrow, right? And people say, Dave, how's things? Well, I'm, I'm being stretched. But ask me how I am. I mean, th- how's things, Dave? Terrible. How's, how are you, Dave? Well, I'm terrific. Because I'm learning to live in a different ecosystem. And I think sometimes the measure people put upon our lives is the wrong measure. And they get us waking up in the morning thinking, well, how's things today? Well, don't do it. It's like if you keep checking your bank account if, if, if you're in poverty. Well, don't do it. It's like pulling, pulling out a seedling every day. It's going to eventually die because you're walking by sight, not by faith. And they're thinking, no, no, no. How, how's, how's things, Dave? Belligerent. Man, it's the wrong question. How are you, Dave? I'm brilliant. How's, how's things, Dave? Tragic. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm terrific. That's the dilemma of the Christian life. That's the division of the Christian life. Because out of your terrible will come terrific. Because faith comes, victory comes. And you know, I'm in the desert and, and it's starting to bloom a little bit, right? You can hear bone put together for bone from Ezekiel you can see a, a, a daisy appears and that some, uh, some unnatural things happen in the deserts right and I can say that's what's happened to a lot of you some unnatural things have hab- happened in deserts right but if you stick around long enough it'll, it'll grow it'll grow and the desert will turn to a parkland but when it does turn to a parkland God says hey Dave enjoy it take a few s- snapshots for Instagram because we're here for about 10 minutes I said, God, where are you taking me? Well, I don't ask him now because he's taking me to another desert. And the reason why he's taking me to another desert is because I'm a desert transformer. This is what I do. <laughs> this is what I'm born for. This is, this is a prosperous man living in deserts. That, that's, 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 why, that's why you're in the town that you're in. Oh, it's a really hard town. Oh, duh, that's why you're there. <laughs> yeah, you know this is what makes you a champion I think the prosperity message has killed the spirit of adventure and it's killed the ability to transform deserts that's what I do I, I eat deserts for breakfast <laughs> you know I, I, because, because this is what I'm on earth for I'm on earth not for easy I'm on earth for impossible you know, faith licks its lips at impossibility. That's why when you get faith, it takes you into impossibility because faith licks its lips at impossibility. There's not one miracle that's happened in the Bible outside of the realms of impossible. And it's the same with, same with your life. 
The third thing that annoys me is people say, Dave, uh, Dave, uh, can I be honest with you? Well, the answer is the answer is no. Just I've I've got an I've got an assistant minister. Be be I'll be honest with them, but but stay away from me, because you're about to back up your truck full of manure. And and in one respect, honesty honesty has become a cult. It, it's 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 become dishonest. There's only two truths in the world. There's, there's present truth and there's future truth that's created by God. So when God looks at the earth, he sees future earth first, present earth second. He sees future you first because he sees through the eyes of faith. Then he sees present you. He loves, he loves future you and he loves present you. And he charts a way between present you and future you. I think it was John Maxwell. He says you want to you want to listen with the with the listen in the realm of reality. You you want to dream in in the realm of impossible uh, in the realm of impossibility. You want to live in the realm of probability, and probability is just beyond the present. So you're living in what you call an alloy between present truth and biblical truth, present truth and biblical prophecy. That's 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 where you live. Now, when someone hates you, they live with an alloy within present triggers and past experience. And even the past you that no longer lives, that no longer exists, it only lives inside their imaginations. And then it's got bitter, it's got twisted. And then they say, can I be honest? Well, they're going to be dishonest. Because, because truth isn't truth anymore when you mix present with the past. It's no longer true. It's something that has been, and it's, and it's completely different to present mixed with future. Because God creates things out of nothing. And so now they're lying. And sometimes when I, when I, I've had terrible trolls, and sometimes when, I, when, I, when a troll turns up on social media, I'll just read the first five words and you get the idea this is a troll. But if I do read it, it'll set me off and trigger me for seven days. And then it will echo in my soul for seven years. The, the answer is, don't hear it. The answer is, create a culture where to heal Darius's daughter, you shut the door to satanic sadness and configurations and only allow three disciples into that room to create a culture of faith. Your culture of faith is the most important asset that you have because faith, faith the currency of heaven. Faith is what opens the door to the treasury of grace. The greatest faith word in the entire Bible is the word B-U-T, but. And in Psalm 31, David said, I feel like broken pottery. Everyone looks around on the other side, uh, walks on the other side of the road to me, right? He, he says, I'm abandoned. I've been abused. He said, but, and then he says, hey, my hope's in you, Lord. Trust in you. My time's, my time's your time. He just added something that wasn't added in there. And, and it's your role in life to put a but. You, you don't want to say, no, I'm well, right? If, you, if you've got fourth stage cancer but you do want to say i'm sick but because you introduce a higher truth and it's the higher truth of what the word of god says and so that's what we're doing in our conversations with people so when people want to tie you to the past you that no longer exists 
And remember, the enemy to your life isn't just the carnal you. It's the, it's the carnal you that relives the past you. Because the only person that God's creating right now is the next you. And through the scripture from, from Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, the next you is the next big thing. I'm not waiting for revival to hit the hills. I'm waiting for revival to hit my heart. Um, whatever happens in me, the Bible says that out of the heart flows the issues. Out of the heart, out of the heart, out of the, the senior team in the church flow the issues of life. You know, I'm waiting for something to happen, happen within me, right? So my greatest enemy is the memories of past Dave. Because I'm already future Dave. I'm living in next Dave. So the greatest enemy is the spirit of condemnation. And you've got to beat com condemnation with celebration of heaven. Dave, I know who you're becoming. I know the direction which you're traveling. I know the breakthrough that's about to take place. You're dealing with a God who sees the future you, who revels in the future you. So anyone who reminds you of who you have been is an enemy to the future that God has for your life. Okay, uh, that's number three. Number, number four is people that say they're hurt. Now, I don't mind hurt people, right? Because hurt people are everywhere. And, and in, in the world, hurt people are absolutely everywhere. So I don't really mind that, right? But I do, but I do mind this, right? That if you're, if you're playing football or if you're playing a sport, then in the sport, you, you, if somebody knees you in the groin or in the leg, right, and you fall down on the ground, you're really hurt. Okay? Yeah, you're hurt, right? The moment the stretcher comes on, you're no longer hurt. You're injured. The language changes. And the moment you're in hospital, when you go out to visit someone in hospital, right, say, how's things going? They never say, oh, I'm injured. No one's ever said, I'm injured when they're in hospital. They say, I'm recovering. This is what the doctor says. And the moment they're out of hospital, they're, they're, in, they're in rehab, right? Well, what are you doing in rehab? Well, I'm, I'm prepping to get back into the game. It's only the church that, that has taken the word hurt and made it last 10 years. <laughs> you know, now all they, all they need to do is let go of the person in the place, like I forgiveness, and then turn it, turn it into injury. Injury is a good thing because now God can heal. God cannot heal hurt because it's, it's smothered in bitterness and unforgiveness. But God can heal injury. And you want to turn the church from hurt into injured. Because <laughs> the moment you introduce injury, well, you introduce God the healer. Because there's an answer to injury, right? So, so how's it, how you go, well, I'm injured. They're going to have to put a but there. I'm injured, but I know that God's the healer. But they've, they've, they've untied themselves from person and place. And you know the mo and the most powerful prayer you can pray is the prayer of Jesus Christ. And he said, he said, Father, forgive them on the cross. He said, they don't know what they're doing, right? And they kind of know what they're doing. Like some of them kind of knew what they were doing, right? But they didn't know the totality of what they're doing. And also Jesus was quite gracious. And what Jesus was trying to do is protect his heart. He's thinking the most valuable thing in this place is, is two things. My blood shed and secondly, my heart of integrity. So he's trying to protect his heart from bitterness and so he excuses everyone and i would say when it comes to your enemies call them idiots call call them broken call them sad but 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 don't hold them accountable you hate the devil 
But don't hate people. Because if you do hate people, you'll be locked into a time and a place. A place and a person. And your job is to free yourself from place and person. And the best way Jesus knew was to take the responsibility off them. Throw it either onto the devil or throw it onto the sovereignty of God, but take it off people so that God can move hurt into injury and then God can bring healing to injury. Here's the fifth thing, right? And, uh, and I'll, I'm going to... Here's the fifth thing. And uh, you'll get this, right? Because this is where my points why people leave church come from. Uh, the fifth thing is when people leave church and they say, God told me. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. Now, now, my goodness me. I've never, I've never heard anyone say, you know, I'm, I'm caught in a little bit of porn and uh, I'm backslidden and, uh, and I've taken a little bit of cocaine lately, so we'll be off. <laughs> I've, I've never heard somebody... Um, admit their sins upon leaving church, right? What they do is justify their actions. And the reason why I don't get involved in undressing the dressing up of excuses is because I want to keep human dignity. So I don't mind, I don't mind being the, the one aggressed upon. I don't mind being the one accused upon because people have to put excuses somewhere. And I'm not there to expose them, to say, oh, it's because, I, you know, I saw your internet history full of pornography because that would expose them in a, in, a, in a time that was more coming from a heart of bitterness because they're leaving rather than a heart of redemption. Everything, every time you expose, there has to be a redemptive heart to it. God never exposes sin outside of a redemptive heart. He, he's, he's not that type of person. In our world today, there's exposing of sins everywhere from sinners, so they better watch out because the Bible says if you can't forgive, God can't forgive you. And so hell is the final destination for people that can't forgive. So they've got to be quite, quite careful in it. Um, but, you know, you've got, to, you've got to allow people to walk out with dignity. And generally, I represent, you represent Christ. If you're a, a leader, you represent Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing is not persecuting you, they're persecuting Christ within you. And I would say that, that you've made some errors, I've made some errors. So I'd say maybe an eighth of our persecution is from our own stupidity. Seventh, eighth is from our authority in Christ. They're trying to persecute and trying to crucify Christ within us through their own uh, vindictiveness. So here's his quickly, here's his, uh, his, uh, his uh, nine way reasons people leave your church. Number one, they never joined your church. Yeah, people want, people need to get baptized into Christ, but because because we pay by installments now, you know, like like someone gets saved, hand up, then they get baptized in water a year after. <laughs> like, what is that? It's pay by installments, and then they get baptized in the spirit three years later. Why why is that? Why not straight away? But that's pay by installments, right? And uh, so so we're living in a, in an era of people paying people paying by installments. And um, uh, hang on a sec, just let me get back to. And so, so when it comes to baptism, the final marker is when they get baptized in the life of church. To get baptized in the life of the church, there has to be a test. And the test is, are you sincerely here because of the call of God upon your life? Or are you here because of the community? The worst thing we can do is say, to build a great church, you build it on four words, belong, believe, dream, and achieve. It's the wrong way around. Because the moment you build it on belonging, people are asking the question, do I fit? 
And yet none of us were called to fit. We, we, every one of us are a piece missing that doesn't fit the current puzzle. We're a piece of the future. You're from the future. The puzzle will rotate around you as you develop your gifting. The second thing is people are trying to find their tribe and trying to find their people. Well, that's anti-Christian because you'll find someone just like you. And the aim of church isn't to find BFFs. The aim of church is to, is to have communion with people that are nothing like you if it wasn't for Christ bringing you together. So that's what happens when you bring in belonging is number one. You build a church on believing. You build a church on faith. You build a church on a revelation of Christ. That's what you build it on, right? And out from that comes community. But community does not lead to revelation. Community leads to over-attachment. And over-attachment is a disease of the age. We over-attach, under-detach. Overattach, underattach. Overattach, underattach. Instead of being attached to Christ, where people are secondary. And if you can mature a church where people are secondary, we're winning in this place. The, the, uh, I'll just do this scientifically, that every church runs off a seven-year cycle from, from a, either a new pastor arriving or something seismic happening. There's this seven-year cycles. First seven years ex is experimental years. Hop on your bike, you ride around the place, right? Fall off the bike lots of times, but we're having fun. It's the great adventure, right? Uh, the second seven years is the foundational years. And this is where you, you say, hey, this is, these are the people who are going to help build this church. This is the culture we're going to build it on. These are the systems that we're going to build it on, right? So they're the foundational years. The third seven years is the industrial years. This is where we really go for it. This is the highest activity in the history and the future of the church is happening in the third seven years, right? So this is, this is trying to multiply everything that you're doing, right? The, the, the fourth seven years is the resting or the, the relaxation or the recreation years. This is, this is when you've, you've established something and now you're sustaining it and, and now everybody's in the rhythm of grace. Beyond that is your influential years. It's very hard. The problem that, the problem that I, the number one mistake I made was I tried to extend the industrial years. I ran a church for 29 years. It was an industrial factory for 29 years. The, the problem that John Cameron has made in, in, uh, in New Zealand is that he created an industrial factory for two decades. He ran it on rocket fuel. And it's got to come a time you take a church off rocket fuel and you run it on unleaded. Hillsong. It, it was ran on rocket fuel for four decades. It's, it's God's plan for the apostolic gift, but you can't build a church purely on the apostolic gift. It has to fan out to the pastoral gift, the evangelistic gift, the prophetic gift, the teaching gift. But if it remains the apostolic gift, then this thing eventually blows apart. But if you can understand what happens in each of the seven years. Now, let me take the first seven years, right? First year of seven years is activation. Everyone's excited about it. The, seven, the, second, the second year is, is, um, is delegation. Everyone's thinking, yeah, well, the, third, uh, the third, well, first is inspiration. Then there's activation. And then there's, then there's delegation. And, and then there's confrontation. As people realize they're not being fulfilled by by. They're by the by the position they've got in church life, and then what happens is 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 the people that were initially in church life resist the new people that come in after year four or five in church life. So you've got a fight going on between the initial people who felt special while the church was small, and the newer people who never knew the church back when it was in those days. 
And then quite often in church life, you have an explosion in year number six where a lot of the old timers and the people that were there at the beginning who prayed for revival but didn't really want revival, they're the ones who leave the church, right? But what it does do is it gives everyone a test to get baptized into church life. And those who do get baptized into church life, in one respect, we've been through a mini one with, with the pandemic, right? Those who do get baptized into church life create a much leaner, a much more greyhound kind of church than a beagle church it was pre-COVID. We've moved from beagle to greyhound. And this has, this has more spring at the step. This has more strength, right? This is leaner, but the future's greater. That's what's happened. So uh, number... Uh, number three, did I say number two? Number two is, uh, is yeah, number two, we rocket fuel the church. I just said that, right? We rocket fuel the church. Number three, the reason why I believe the church is called middle child syndrome. And I, and I just did explain that, right? Because when the, when the, when if you're, the, you're the only child, right? And you're there and the pastor loves you, spends a lot of time with you. And then, then you get all these newbies coming into the church, right? Then it's like a second child coming into the, the family, right? That the oldest child now gets now gets jealous. And then when there's three, which we get the expression middle child syndrome, uh, the youngest one's able to muck around, gets all the attention, right? Tries to get the attention. The oldest one is the most responsible one, and, and they're the ones that the parents have spent most time on. It's the middle one that's invisible. And God takes you through a test of invisibility. He says, what are you going to do when you're invisible? It's like the bench test. What are you going to do when you're on the bench, right? And what you do in invisibility is, is an absolute key to your future. I don't know if you saw, there's a, skit, there's a program, a, a comedy sketch show called Little Britain. Yeah, yeah, some of you have seen it, right? Now, in Little Britain, there's a sketch there, and it's called The Only Gay in the Village. And uh, he's, he's, he's one of the two characters who've done Little Britain, right? And he's wearing, like, pink lycra, right? And he's, he's, he's the only gay in the village, in a Welsh village, right? And the village has maybe a thousand people in it. He's the only gay in it, right? And then another gay arrives. And this skit, this this sketch is done a hundred times, right? Another gay arrives in in blue lycra. And instead of thinking, oh great, the second gay has arrived in the village, the the first gay thinks, I don't like you, because I'm the only gay in the village. And so it's it comes to a universal principle that applies to church life. When the church is small, there's only one of you. When the church grows, there's somebody else who's kind of like you. When the church is small, there's one guitarist at a certain grade. As the church grows, there's a better guitarist. And most people leave because of middle child syndrome, because they no longer feel like the oldest or the youngest. They feel like they're in the invisible middle. And people get their security by what they do, not by whose they are. And it's a testing from God, and you can't actually meddle with it because God's testings are done in private. That you can't help them, otherwise they'll cheat the test. And so some people leave because they were once famous in the church and are no longer famous in the church. It's called maturity, but a lot of people want to be immature all of their lives. So they go down to another church and they play guitar in that church. And they remain uh, what Rob would call a midget, but I want to call a small person. Uh, n- number number four is is we see people as they as they were, not as they will be. And I'll say this: the reason why kids have to leave generally leave home sometime after eighteen years of age, right, is because you still see them as twelve. And the only way they can grow up is to leave home and grow up. 
and I'll say this about the problem that, that multi-site church has, and this is one of the problems we ran into, because we have one church in 12 locations, right, is, is that multi-site was never meant to be fixed in concrete. It was meant to be a transition point to raise disciples and to take people out of youth ministry, young adult ministry, into church ministry temporarily until they take full responsibility. Once you put someone over 40 years of age in charge of one of the locations of the church where they don't have full control over the church, you, you, you stop manhood totally uh, coming to the forefront because men need responsibility. It, it's, that's why men act as children. They're like boys most of their lives. And they need, they need responsibility to drag them out of boyhood into manhood. And so, so I found that, that with my guys, I saw them when they came into the church as teenagers and I rarely saw them beyond 22 years of age and some were now 42 years of age. That creates tension. And the time came a few years before uh, it should have come for them to actually leave and establish their own congregation. Now, here's the principle. The people who took you from A to B are rarely the people that take you from B to C. The people that took you from drowning to the edge of the lake are rarely the people that take you from the edge of the lake to the top of the mountain. And it's because they still see you as a loser. You're a drug addict. You're drowning in the center of a lake. And there's somebody who's a good counselor takes you from the center of the lake to the edge of the lake. They cannot ever stop seeing you as a drowning addict. So God has to remove them. And God has to bring along somebody who doesn't know your past. They just hear the history. But they see you as a survivor. And their vision is to make you a victor. But it's a change of people. And I think that it's God's will that people come in seasons, that the people that took the church from, from zero to seven years, often different to the people that take you from seven for four to 14, who are different. You have, you have a lift shaft in there, but generally there's a difference, right? Because this is, this is God leapfrogging us into our future. I don't want to be held back by someone's impression of me seven years ago. I'm a different person. I've been transformed by Christ. And so that's why God gives you a new set of friends around about you because they see you as you will be, not as you were. It's a really important issue in Christ because you think everyone's got BFFs that last forever. Very few people have. Uh, most men have no BFFs that last for a long time. Women often have a couple of BFFs. But the BFFs are interesting. Some are high school BFFs that aren't really close, but they have a giggle. Some, some are BFFs in that they're BFFs, but only when you're going through an incredible tragedy and a difficult time, they're BFFs. So there's a consistency there. But very rarely do, does anyone have the consistency of, hey, we'll hang out every week, uh, all seven-year cycles. So I don't think you should, I don't, you know, we ministered in, in the UK for 29 years, and after all said and gone, I think my wife has four friends. Can I say this about the four friends? It's biblical. Why? Because she, she's now in a new stage of life. She doesn't want to be held back by 17 friends. She only needs four friends, right? And these four friends are the believers in her future. But most people think, oh, I've got nothing to do with her future because she's 10,000 miles away. Yeah, that's why we've got nothing to do with you. Do you get it? This is God's protection of you because God believes in your future uh, more, more than your past, right? Um, so number five is we, we, create, we create teams too quickly, you know, you know, two people, like mo most problems in marriage, right, aren't, aren't the marriage splits up. The marriage should never have happened. 
I just don't know where we, where we get this from. Oh, there's a problem with divorce. No, there isn't. There's a problem with marriage. <laughs> they got married because of sexual attraction. They got married because of some giggle they had, right? They, they, they didn't get married. They got married because of their own personal insecurity. And most elderships are created by the insecurity of a pastor. Think, oh, I'm not good at business. I need a businessman. So they pick a carnal businessman. And the split that happens in a church, let's say in 10 years' time, starts with the formation of the leadership team in year one. The split is the manifestation of something that should never have happened, and it happened because of personal insecurity. You want to learn to be a one-man band. Every one of you needs to learn to be a one-man band and need to be happy with it, knowing that you and Christ are a brilliant combination. The Bible says one shall put a thousand to flight, two will put ten thousand to flight. Why do you jump to two when one should put a thousand to flight? Be somebody that puts a thousand to flight. Be brilliant, and then meet somebody else who puts a thousand to flight, and then you'll move into synergy. Two will put ten thousand to flight. But one loser who meets one loser just they lose together and so i want to say don't be so don't be so impatient creating a team because if you create a team out of impatience that will be the recipe for a breakdown in five years time in seven years time in 10 years time Number six is we feel pressure to reward people. You know, oh gosh, we, what we do is, is someone's, someone's bored on car park duty, so we reward them. Somebody who's, somebody's bored uh, heading up the, the, the care teams and the small groups, so we reward them. And we say, oh, come on eldership, right? That's like somebody who's in Division One football saying, come on the Premier League. Well, the moment they come out of the Premier League, we know that you're not a Premier League player. Because now you're in a zone called incompetence. And the only thing that somebody can do with incompetence is blame the captain. Because they should never have been exalted into the Premier League to start with. If someone's bored, they've got a problem with vision. If someone's itchy, scratchy, they've got a problem with vision. If someone's not content, there's a problem in their relationship with God. It's not a problem with what they do. But we think, oh gosh, we need to keep them stimulated. We need to keep them enjoying. So, say, so you can be the MD on music. No, no, don't do that. Don't promote people based on their own itchy scratchy, never do that because they need to solve that in the relationship with God. That's a test that goes on. It'll never be relieved by you bypassing the test and giving them a promotion. Number seven is, is, uh, is, is we feel dumb and we make dumb decisions because we feel dumb. I'll give you an example. Someone who's like 60 years old comes into the church, they go to Thompson Tain, Chain Reference Bible and, and they know everything about the Bible from beginning to end. They know Greek, they know Hebrew and then we think, oh, you need to come onto the eldership of the church, right? But they haven't changed in 15 years. The dynamic of Christian life isn't what you know, it's how much you change. It's not even your holiness, right? Because you can still have a little addiction to cocaine, but if you're changing, then it's change that, that, that unites Christendom. It's transformation. That's the character. How do you know someone's a Christian? Because they're changing. It's not because they don't smoke. It's because they're changing. There's something evolving about them. That's how you know they're a Christian, because they're different. And so we get fooled by it and we put intellectuals on the board and we put, we put people who make money on the board and it, because we feel intimidated uh, by it and we feel dumb when we're with them, right? If, let me say this. If, when I'm talking to people after church, if someone makes me feel a little unspiritual, they've got a problem. Because, because our role is to make other people feel like a million dollars. 
So why don't they make me feel like a million dollars? It's because they're filled with pride, because they're filled with 23 prophecies before lunch, because they haven't got a job. Get a job, slow the prophecies down. Why are you making me feel so, so down on myself? You should make me feel like an utter champion. So anyone who doesn't make you feel like a champion, there's something wrong with them. Don't release them amongst the people. You know, let me say this about Judas. The reason why Judas was treasurer was to keep him away from the people. Because, because it was dealing with, with stuff. He was stealing money. But that's better than stealing hearts. We think, oh, you're a good person, but, but you're not proven. We'll put you over people. No, you'd be an idiot to make them a, a small group leader. You want to put them over, over finances, put them over cleaning, put them over sound, put them uh, over musicians, and then put them over people when, when their heart's proven and tested that they're actually shepherds and not hirelings. Uh, number, number eight uh, is the Gideon principle. Sometimes God just wants to trim a church right down just so when the victory comes, we think, oh, it wasn't because we had a great team. It's because we had a great God. So I got a feeling that part of that's happening happening in, in most churches across Australia. You know, they've lost like a quarter of the people, sometimes a third of the people. It, it, what is that? Oh, let me think. Gideon's army. <laughs> well, why? That's just so we don't get the glory. Thinking, hey, look at us. Look at what a great church we have. <laughs> you want to have something slightly crumbling for God to give bring glory to it, right? Slightly crumbling at the edges. Something that's not quite as good as it used to be. God to bring glory to it. And then my last point, and I'll get down after this, um, is it's because we became a sending church. And I'll say this about country churches. Country churches, because you think, oh, no, I've got young, no young adults because they'll go off to college. Yeah, they don't go off to college. You send them to college. Oh, my goodness me. Get, get the mission. The mission of, of a country parish is, 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 t- is to get people, is to raise them up, and then when they get to young adulthood, it's to send them, send them, send them, send them to a city church. Let them get educated, but they're not just getting educated. They're now taken by a city church that gives no thanks to you for creating them, right? Which, which is the terrible side to it, right? But now they've got them. Now it's their job to put them through their paces, right? Because, because you, you were too soft on them because you knew them when they were seven or eight, right? But now the city church doesn't know them. So the standard now, the standard now of the city church is to, is, to, is to give them their marching orders and to make men and women of God and properly disciple them. But don't feel like they don't, don't be bitter about that. Just because they don't thank you for it doesn't mean you haven't sent them. You, you want to be a raising church, you want to be a sending church. And also I say this about, about high missions work and things like that, that generally after being a city church, there are suburban churches. And suburban churches are to maintain a wider sphere of influence of the church in the world today. So they're to get behind world vision. They're to get behind compassion. They're, they're to get behind domestic violence. You know, because they've got more financial capacity because they're outside the inner city. Now they're in the suburbs. And so those, the responsibility on suburban churches are enormous to take care of the, of, of the Christian influence in the world around about them. But a country parish, raise them up, send them off. Raise them up, send them off. Raise them up, have a party. Goodbye. Find out how they're going, right? But don't sort of think they're robbing us because it robs you of a great sense of calling. Nine reasons why people leave your church. God bless you. I'll see you after lunch.